Well, last week as we were looking in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that the Pharisees had come to Jesus Christ and they had a question for him, one that was designed to trap him. But then Jesus turned the tables on them and they were the ones who were stumped. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 20 and verse 27, what we're going to see is that uh, next in line to try to trip up Jesus are the Sadducees. As you read through the Bible, what you'll find is there are three main religious groups that are mentioned. There are the scribes, and they were the lawyers of the day. They were the experts in the, the, the law of God, and so they applied it to society in that day. Then we had the Pharisees, uh, and the Pharisees are the ones who ran the synagogues. They were the local leaders, and they tried to run everybody's lives as well. As you, have, uh, as you look at the Pharisees, they not only believed in the totality of the Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament, but they also uh, had their own list of rules and regulations that they tried to apply to everybody. And then the Sadducees were the group that ran the temple. They were the priestly line that oversaw everything in the temple. And because of that, they saw society and the law and everything revolving around the sacrificial system. Now, they only accepted as scripture the first five books of the Bible, what's called the Pentateuch, Penta being five, so the book's of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the only accepted scripture for this group. Another thing that set the Sadducees apart from the Pharisees is they did not believe in angels or the resurrection. If you look at Acts 23.8, it says, For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. If you want to try to remember the difference between them, just remember that it's sad you see that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Um, So it's why as you read through the New Testament, you find that these priests, these Sadducees, were so vehemently opposed to the teaching of the disciples in Acts chapter 4 as they talked about the resurrection. It's why in John chapter 12, they they were furious with Lazarus walking around because you remember Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And that kind of punches a hole in your argument that there is no resurrection when there's a guy walking around who everybody knew had, had died and Jesus had brought back from the, from the dead. It's, it's kind of blows my mind that it says they wanted to kill him again. What's Jesus going to do? He just bring him back again, right? And, it, and it's why they hated Jesus, because Jesus was always talking about the resurrection. So what we find happening today in Luke chapter 20 is as they come to Christ, they say, we've got a question about the resurrection. Now, they really don't care about the resurrection. They think it doesn't exist. So what their question is crafted to do is not get an answer about the, the resurrection. It's designed to make Jesus look foolish. Because they set up this extreme scenario that they think there is going to be no way to answer it. So let's look now at what they ask in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 33. Luke twenty twenty-seven says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he is childless, His brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And in the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now the question they're laying out here is about something called the Leverite the Leverite Law, 
A lot of our theological terms come from the Latin, and so the Latin word lever, lever, uh, or leverite here, means a brother's husband. And so what, what a husband's brother here, and so what they're doing is they're saying there's this leverite law of marriage. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in verses 5 through 10. And if you read it, what it says is that if you're a man and you marry a woman and you die childless and you have an unmarried brother, your brother is obligated to marry your widow. And when he marries her and they have a child, that child is not the heir of the new husband. Rather, it is to be named after the brother who has already passed away. And the reason for this is as you look at the allotment of land that was given by God to the nation of Israel, he he went in and he gave the land by tribes. And within the tribes, he gave it to households. And so women in that day, you'll remember, did not have any property rights. Land could not pass to a woman. And so what would happen is that family's name would disappear and the land would be absorbed by the surrounding households. And so to prevent this from happening, God set up the law of Leverite marriage that said you could raise up an heir in the name of a brother in order to preserve this. So they create this scenario based upon the law, and they say there are seven brothers who marry this woman, and they all die. So who's, who's the husband in the resurrection? Now, if I were Jesus, I would have said, I think a better question is, is it her cooking, or is there something else? I mean... Ha- how do you kill off seven brothers, right? This is, this is ludicrous, the question that's being asked here. But, but rather than argue about that, Jesus just goes right to the, the, the core, right? He says, I know what you're asking, and I'll just answer it. There is a resurrection. There's a resurrection. And he says, the problem is you really don't understand it. It's clear from what you're asking. So look at what he tells them in verses 34 through 40. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age. Now, when we talk about ages, remember in the Bible, there are different seasons. Theologians call them dispensations where God operates in certain ways. We are living in the present age, what Jesus is talking about today. Uh, there, There is a kingdom to come. There is eternity. There are various things. But what they're asking, Jesus is saying right now as the world is today. It's like everyone sitting here, he says, you're physically human, you, you have flesh and blood, so this is what he's saying. He says, the sons of this age marry, and they're given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, see, this is a coming change. He says, those worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels. And, and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the burning bush, where he, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. As, as Jesus responds here, the scribes are standing there. Remember, they're another group, and they were probably next in line. And they, they had seen Jesus shoot down the Pharisees earlier, and now the Sadducees go down in flames, and they kind of look at each other and wisely say, as lawyers, we better pass this witness. We have no questions, Your Honor. And so they just they, they, they tuck their tails between their legs, and they say, good answer, Jesus. Now, 
they, they didn't have any questions for Jesus, but reading this probably creates questions for many of us. And so let's unpack this passage a little bit further. As you look at verse 35, I told you Jesus says plainly, there's a resurrection. And he says it there. He says there's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Now remember, the Sadducees didn't believe that. But they did believe in the first five books of the Bible. And so to prove that there is a resurrection, Jesus says, let's go to the book of Exodus. You believe in the book of Exodus. And so what he does is he quotes from Exodus 3, 6, where it said, as God was talking to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. As you look at this, you notice it's in the present tense. He doesn't say, I was the God of these guys when they were alive a couple of hundred years ago. The patriarchs had all died at this point. What he says is, I am the God of these guys. This is present tense uh, stuff. And what he's saying is, they're alive even after they've died. Now, in our day and age, a popular myth is that when a person dies, they become an angel, right? I love the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And if you've ever watched it, you know there's this guy in there named Clarence. He's this angel second class, right? And Clarence comes to earth. He's this bumbling guy who's trying to earn his wings to become a full angel in heaven. So he helps out this guy named George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. That's a great movie, but that's not what the Bible teaches. See, what the Bible tells us is when we as human beings die, we do not become angels. As you look at what Jesus says here, look again at your passage It says in verse 36, we don't become angels. It says we are like angels. There's a big difference. And when he says we become like angels, what he's saying is we become immortal. Angels are created beings in their own class, their own order. And he says angels do not procreate. They are immortal beings that do not reproduce themselves. And he says, when we get into eternity as resurrected saints, he says, we will not procreate either. As people who have received our resurrected bodies, we will not be reproducing, which is why there is no marriage. Now, Psalm 148.5 says, for God commanded and they were created. This speaks of angels. When it comes to you and I as individuals, God commanded and we were created as well. But last week what we saw in Genesis 127 is that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. You see, as people, we bear the image of God as we talked about last week. That's the imago Dei, Latin for the image of God. Angels are their own class, their own order of creation. The word angelos, the Greek word, means a messenger. And it speaks of these servants and messenger angels. We are not uh, turned into angels. Right now, they are a little higher than us because they possess more of this eternal form than we will one day possess. You see, what the Bible says is there is a day coming for us in 1 John 3, 2. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, that's Jesus at his second coming, the rapture and things that we're about to talk about, it says we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. As you think about Jesus and what he is, we're talking about his resurrection. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he was crucified on a cross, he was buried in a tomb, 
And and three days later, he rose from the dead. And over a period of 40 days, he walked the earth, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. I want you to think about what you've read in the Bible about those resurrection appearances. As Jesus received his resurrected body, he's called the firstborn from the dead. There were others like Lazarus who were raised from the dead but then died again. So they don't have their permanent resurrected body. Jesus was the first to have it. And when he received his resurrected body, it wasn't a carbon copy of what he looked like the first time. He had a form that was similar and yet different. Now, why do I say that? Well, think about Mary Magdalene. Do you remember when she came and found him in the garden? And she thought he was the gardener. She didn't recognize him at first, but then she saw him for who he was. As Jesus walked on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, they didn't recognize who he was at first, but then they saw him for who he was. When Jesus was on the seashore in the Sea of Galilee, the disciples didn't know it was him, but then they recognized him. So his body was similar enough and yet different. People ask me all the time, when we get to heaven, will I know my loved ones? Will I I know my mom or dad or my son or daughter or my husband or wife? Will I I recognize these people, my best friend? And the answer is yes. Yes. You will be able to recognize them. We are unique individuals. We don't become part of this cosmic cloud where we float around in heaven as as some mist. We, We have physical bodies. We are unique individuals. The Bible says we will be given a white stone with a name on it that is unique to us, that only we and and God know our name. So you are an individual. You will have a real physical body. It will be similar to what you are now and yet different than what you are now. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have muscles. Um, you know, I have some men tell me I'm going to have hair in heaven. You, you pick what it is that you think uh, is lacking in your life at the moment. And when you get to heaven, your resurrected body is going to be better, better than whatever you can imagine it is. And yet you are going to look similar to what you are today. Uh, Philippians 3.21 says, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Jesus had a real physical body. And what the Bible tells us is when we see him in heaven, we will see him as standing as a lamb as if slain. He will, we will see the marks of the crucifixion. The marks that he told Thomas, reach your finger and put it here in the hole in my, in my hands. Take your fist and put it in the hole in my side where the spear pierced me. Remember, he had a real physical body. He ate fish in the presence of the disciples. He said, I'm not some ghostly form floating around. He had a physical body that Mary clung to in the garden when he said, I have to go and ascend. That body was real. And yet it was different because he could pass through a door to be in the presence of Thomas and others. You know, as you think about our bodies being transformed, think about what God does in our world. He, he takes an acorn and he turns it into an oak. He, he takes a bulb and he turns it into a tulip flower. God transforms. The, the essence is there and he transforms it into this eternal glorified state. The word eternal means everlasting, never-ending, timeless, or ceaseless. And as you think of the body you will have in heaven, it will not have the limitations of the one we have now. We will not have aches and pains and, and all the problems that we possess, including our sin nature. All of that will be done away with. 
who have these glorified, perfected bodies. Now, when does this happen? Well, it happens at something called the rapture. Now, I'm about to dump the truck on y'all and show you a bunch of slides. And instead of trying to write fervently, or you're welcome to take out your iPhone, take pictures and things if you want, but all these slides are always online. So if you go to the sermon section, you'll be able to go back and look at these things and study them deeper on your own because we're going to be water skiing here as we go along. We're going to be scuba diving, actually, but we're going to be moving quickly, so uh, brace yourself. So as you talk about the end times, we need to start before where we are in our passage because in Daniel chapter 9, there's something called the 77s of Daniel, and it's the prophetic calendar that tells us uh, what is leading to the end-time events that we in this day are looking forward to. And there are 77s, seven-year prophetics times seven, a 490-year period. And as you look at Daniel 9.25, 69 of these 70s have taken place. And then Daniel 9.26 says the Messiah will be cut off. And it pointed to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And as we've already talked about, Jesus was buried in a tomb. He was raised from the dead. He is resurrected. After 40 days on the earth, he ascended into heaven where he is physically seated at the right hand of God, waiting to return to the earth. So we are presently in what theologians call the church age. It began at the day of Pentecost, as you can read in Acts chapter 2, and we're waiting for an event that will end the church age, which is called the rapture. Now, I told you we get a lot of our words from Latin, lever for leverite. Well, rapture is the Latin word rapturo, which means to be caught up. And we find that in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 13 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. It means those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the rapture is pointing to what happens to Christians. Christians are those who have believed in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, there were people called the righteous uh, Old Testament saints, those like Abraham who say he believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He did not yet know the name Jesus. The word Christ means Messiah. And so he knew there was a promised one coming, but he didn't know his name was Jesus Christ like we do. So the Old Testament believers... Uh, We'll be in heaven one day, but you're going to see as we walk through this that there is a separate resurrection for the Old Testament saints. We're talking about New Testament Christians, those from the time of Christ forward. And it says many of you, like I have, have lost loved ones. My mom and dad are home with the Lord. I have dear friends that are home with the Lord. And what it tells us is as a Christian dies, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we have a physical form called our flesh and blood. That gets buried in the grave. It's cremated sometimes. There's various things that are done with our earthly remains. 
but our eternal soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord. And again, we're not some disembodied state. When we get to the talk about the revelation, uh, the tribulation martyrs, we're going to see they have a form. They're given a robe, but they haven't yet received their, their resurrected bodies. So what I want you to understand, the rapture is talking about those of us, it says those who are alive, look around, that's us, and it says some have died have been, and been buried. And so that's who's in view. And it says that at the rapture, what is going to happen is we will rise to meet the Lord in the air. Now that's important because we're going to talk about the second coming in a moment where Christ returns physically to the earth. Do you see the two separate events? One, we go up to meet God in the air. The other one deals with right here on earth where we are now. So it says that the rapture, believers will be raised. Those who have died, their physical bodies are resurrected first. And then we who are physically still alive are raised as well. And so as you think about the rapture that's occurring, uh, <laughs> here we go, right? So we're raised to meet the Lord in the air. Now, you notice I have pre-tribulational rapture there because that means before the tribulation occurs. And that's because the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus Christ tells us, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I know there are good and godly people who believe that the rapture occurs uh, after the tribulation, right? I've just told you why I believe it's a pre-tribulational rapture. And if you want to remain here for that terrible time of tribulation, you're welcome to. But I'm going to bank on what the Bible says, and I'm going to be home with the Lord in heaven. Now, I said earlier that not everyone is raptured at the same time. When we were back in Luke chapter 13 and verse 28, we talked about in that message how the Old Testament saints like the patriarchs and the prophets, as well as the tribulation martyrs, will receive their resurrection at the second coming of Christ. And we find that in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 says this. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. This is Michael the archangel. And, and it says, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So this is speaking of something called the tribulation. And it says, at that time, your people, this is the Jews. Remember, Daniel is speaking to the Jews in the Old Testament. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, that's the book of life. When you become, when you place your faith in God's provision for salvation, your name is recorded in the book of life. So these are Old Testament believers, Jews who have looked like Abraham to what God promised and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. And it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, the time of great distress is what is known as the tribulation. Remember, we talked about Daniel 77s. This is the last seven-year period that is yet to come. 
And we read in Daniel 9.27, but in the middle of the week, that means at the three and a half year mark, the abomination of desolation occurs. And the abomination of desolation is when Satan, remember at the rapture, all Christians are gone. Think of the chaos in this world. If even half of the people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ are suddenly gone, what will this world look like? Planes are going to crash, cars are going to crash, things are going to fold. If the rapture were to happen Sunday morning here at Wayside, this building would not completely empty because there are non-believers among us. And there would be a few people left looking around going, what happened? And so the world is going to be in chaos And the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet, this unholy trinity, are going to be given power during that seven-year time. And Satan is going to bring some semblance of order to the world. He's going to regather Israel and the the Jews and the nation of Israel. There's going to be a period of relative peace, but then at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to reveal who he really is. And he's going to demand to be worshipped as God. And this is what's called the abomination of desolation. The desecration of the temple as he says, I am God to be worshipped. And then begins the period of extreme, what's called the Great Tribulation, the last half of this period. And during that time, remember, we are going to be raptured as Christians. But all the Bibles are left. All the sermons like these are left behind. Some of you who have heard the truth but have not yet responded to who Jesus is will be left. There are actually going to be pastors left in pulpits who are not saved. And there are going to be people telling what the truth is. And the Bible tells us during the tribulation, God will send two witnesses from heaven to walk the earth and declare the truth. So many, many people will be coming to faith during the tribulation. And Satan doesn't like them. And he wants to kill them. He'll be persecuting them. He'll be saying, deny uh, God and worship me instead. And those who don't will be martyred. Now, there will still be Christians who survive during that time. We're going to see in a moment what happens to them. But what's happening is there are going to be people called the tribulation martyrs. They're killed for their faith. And this is what is talked about in Revelation chapter 20 and verses 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls, remember when a believer dies, their soul goes to heaven. So it says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead. This is what's happening right here. And it says, They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we've had the rapture. The tribulation is taking place. These people are killed during this final seven-year period. So when do they come to life? Well... It says they come to life at what is the second coming of Jesus, as we're about to see, because there is then, it said, a thousand years. And that's something called the millennial kingdom. Again, the Latin word for a thousand is millennial. And so millennium, that's why we get the millennial kingdom. The Greek word is kylia. It's found six times in Revelation chapter 20. It is a literal thousand-year period that takes place in terms of our calendar. But all of this happens in what's called the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's called the second coming because he came to earth the first time as the baby at Bethlehem. And he grew up and he became a man who went to the cross and he died to save us. That was his first time here on earth. He ascended to heaven, but he's returning a second time to earth. 
And when Jesus comes back a second time, it will not be like the first time. He's going to physically return to the earth. And when he does, it is to uh, combat what is happening, to overthrow Satan. You've heard of the Battle of Armageddon? Armageddon comes from the Hebrew word har, which means mountain, and Megiddo, the plain of Megiddo. As you read through the Bible, it says that as Satan is in power, he's regathered Israel. He wants to destroy the Jews. He knows his time is short. And so the armies of the world are gathered together at Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. It's where we get Armageddon from. And when Jesus Christ returns, it's because Israel is about to be wiped out. But Jesus comes back with the armies of heaven to the earth. And that's when this battle of Armageddon takes place. He comes at the second coming. You see the passages there. You can go home and read on your own. The battle of Armageddon takes place in Revelation 16, 16. And what Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 3 tell us is, God takes Satan, an angel binds him and throws him into the abyss. Not hell. There's something called the lake of fire. Now, I told you there was this unholy trinity, the beast, the false prophet, and Satan. The beast and the false prophet in Revelation chapter 19 were thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound for a thousand years. He's going to get out here at the end of a thousand years as we're going to see. But at that moment, all the non-believers who were fighting on Satan's side also get killed. They they, They die. Now, there are Christians who did not die yet as martyrs. Are you with me? I know we're dumping the truck. Are you still with me? All right, so you've got all the non-believers are dead. You've got Satan in a prison. You've got Jesus who has returned to the earth. And who has returned with him? Who makes up the armies of heaven? We do. Raptured believers will return physically to the earth in our glorified bodies, right? So we have returned in our eternal glorified bodies to the earth. Now, who are the other people that are left on the earth? Well, before we get there, let me talk about uh, this for a moment. Back when we were in Luke chapter 19, we talked about the uh, Bema seat, the judgment. Do you remember the parable of the Minas? How many of you were here for that sermon? Okay, for those of you who didn't lift your hands, go back online Listen to Luke chapter 19 because you'll hear about the rewards that are given to returning Christians during the millennial kingdom. And it's called the beam of judgment seat where you are literally given rewards. Remember the person, the people who were faithful and lived their lives for the Lord during this lifetime received uh, authority over cities. It said to one, you'll be over five cities. To another, you're going to be over 10 cities. That's there in Luke chapter 19. And where we receive these rewards is at what's called the Bema Judgment Seat. It's called that because the Greek word used is bematos, the Bema Seat. And what 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us is, for we must all appear before the Judgment Seat, the bematos. This is not the great white throne judgment. We must all appear before the bematos, the Judgment Seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That's why we're living right now according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so as resurrected Christians who return to the earth, we are returning because God has something for us to do during the millennial kingdom. Now, I told you that there are people who are physically living here on the earth. You see, us in our resurrected bodies have returned 
But we, there are still people who look like us right now. Pinch yourself. You got flesh and blood, your skin, right? Those are those people. They're living on the earth. They survived the tribulation. They were not martyred. And they're still here because they did place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible tells us about these individuals. If you've ever heard of the separation of the sheep from the goats, have you ever read that in the Bible? Well, this is what's taking place. And again, you can go back and read these passages. There's the nation of Israel that God is dealing with. That's why I have it, the judgment of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 20, Malachi chapter 3, Matthew chapter 25. And then there's the judgment of the nations. That's Gentiles, non-Jews. And that's spoken about in Joel chapter 3, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And so what it says is, at the return of Christ, he will separate the sheep, the believers in Christ, or the righteous Jews, and he will separate the goats, the non-believers. The goats are all killed, remember that? When Satan is overthrown and bound, the non-believers die. The believers live and go into the millennial kingdom. Now, the whole passage began with a question about marriage in the coming kingdom. And we saw that we as resurrected Christians will not be given in marriage or not. But guess what? There are people who are physically alive just like we are today. If you are a married couple during the tribulation and you both come to faith in Christ, you both enter into the millennial kingdom as a husband and wife. There are others that will be children who will enter into the kingdom, who will grow up, and they will marry and be given in marriage. But you and I who are resurrected believers who are here, we will not be marrying or giving. We do not recreate ourselves. We are in our glorified, perfect state. Are you with me so far? Everybody still awake? So this is what Jesus is talking about, the, the coming afterlife. Now, during this time... Those people who marry, guess what? They are procreating. They are having babies. And the millennial kingdom lasts for how long? A thousand years. How many generations can be born in a thousand years? See, babies are going to be having babies who will be having babies who will be having babies. And the millennial kingdom is different than our day and age. In our day, when somebody dies uh, at the age of 100, what do we say about them? Boy, they lived a long time. You know what the Bible says about them? It says, if you die at 100 years of age, you'll be thought wicked, that you'll have died so early in life. Isaiah 65 says that those who die at 100 years of age will be thought to be wicked. The Bible tells us during the millennial kingdom there will be peace. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. There will not be war. Disease will be held in check. People will be living longer. Jesus Christ, remember, returned to the earth physically. And he is seated on the throne in Jerusalem, on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. This should blow your minds about how hardened the hearts of people can be. Because they will be here in as a perfect a state as we can have, minus what is to come in the eternal state. There's no war, diseases in check, people are living long, the righteous king is on the throne. They can physically see him. The Bible says they will be coming to present their gifts to him. He is here. Zechariah chapter 14 says that when Christ returns, his feet will physically stand on the Mount of Olives. 
He's here in bodily form, in his resurrected form. And yet, some people will not believe him to be the righteous king, the Lord of lords, and the king of kings. Who are those people who don't believe him? Well, everybody who started in the millennial kingdom is a Christian. Their children, most, I don't know how many do or don't believe, but they will be coming to faith. Their grandchildren, some will come to faith, some will not. Their great-grandchildren, some will come to faith, some will not. And so at the end of a thousand years of all these new people being born on the earth, do you know why the earth has to be repopulated? Do you remember what happens during the tribulation? During the tribulation, the sealed trumpet and bold judgments in Revelation tell us that billions and billions of people will be killed. The judgments and the things that are happening, the the earth is being decimated. And then of those who survive to the very end, remember all the non-Christians are killed. So the population of the world starts out fairly small. But then it begins to repopulate. Now let me just say something here that's important. You've probably heard in Mormonism, they teach that if, if you're a good enough Mormon, it says that if I'm a good enough man as a Mormon, and I do all the temple ceremonies like sealing my marriage and all these things, that I can then become a god. And I will have my own planted. Okay, when, when I die according to Mormonism, if I've been good enough, I become a god like Jesus. I'm given my own planet, and I populate my planet. That is not what we're talking about. That is not biblical. That is not right. The Bible tells us in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word only begotten is monogenes. It means literally the unique, one-of-a-kind God-man. There is only one God-man, Jesus Christ. I do not become a God. You do not become a God like Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of God, but we will never be God. And we will not have our own planet. We're still talking about planet Earth that we are on right now. And this planet repopulates. But then there is a time coming where at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of a thousand years, remember where Satan was for a thousand years? Where was he? He's locked up. Well, guess what Revelation 27 tells us? Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 says, Satan is released. And then as you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, it says that what he does is he gathers together all the unbelievers. These are the babies of the babies of the babies who some did not become Christians, did not place their faith in the the God, Jesus, Messiah. And it says he will gather these nations together and there will be a battle called the battle of Gog and Magog. And God says, I'm done with rebellion. I'm done with sin. And so what he does is he takes Satan and he's thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell where his buddies, the beast and the false prophet, were already thrown back in Revelation 19, 19, and 20. And so Satan is permanently thrown into hell. He's not running hell. You know, we have all these cartoons where Satan's there with a pitchfork and he's in charge. He is there in judgment. So he's thrown into hell. Now, what about these non-believers who rebelled against God during the millennial kingdom? Well, they get to go before something called the great white throne judgment. And it's not just these who rebelled during the millennial kingdom, but it's the unbelievers throughout all the ages who are resurrected. And they are brought before Jesus Christ. And what the great white throne judgment says is God will open the book of life. 
And no one who is standing at the great white throne judgment has their name in the book of life because they've all rejected Jesus' death in their place. And so Jesus says to every single person there, you get to pay the penalty of death yourself and they're sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. Are you with me so far? Friends, you do not want to be there. There is one destination at the lake of fire, and that's eternal separation from God in the place we call hell. There is eternal life with God in heaven, and there is eternal separation in a place called hell. And we find that in the rest of the scriptures. Because what the Bible tells us is, after the judgment, it says, heaven and earth fled away at the great white throne judgment. Second Peter 3, you can read that chapter about the destruction of the current world that is corrupted by sin. God is going to destroy it all with fire. He's going to recreate the new heavens and the new earth that are in perfection. Only those who have been believers in Christ or believed as righteous Old Testament saints in what God revealed to them will be in the eternal state. You can read Revelation chapters 21 and 22 to see. Now you see the new Jerusalem. We passed over that. It's in Revelation chapter 3. This is the heavenly city that comes down out of heaven. And there's a debate among people as to whether or not this is present during the millennial kingdom or it comes down at that point. It doesn't say it's created at this point. It says it comes down out of heaven. And so some, myself included, I believe that those of us who are raptured saints that are physically here on the earth will be kind of commuting to work, right? We get to go back home to the New Jerusalem. We come and go. And so you can read about that city. You know, the Bible tells us when we die as Christians in my father's house are many rooms. This is where we're going. And so the New Jerusalem goes into the new eternity and the eternal state. But as you look below, all the unbelievers, those who have rejected Jesus, will be rejected for all time. And so if everything we've covered today has left you kind of reeling and you're wondering, where am I and what's going on? Let me put the cookies on the bottom shelf for you. Because there's only one question you really need to answer today. And that's, where will you be when your life on this earth is over? And it's all determined by what you've done with what Jesus did for you. We're about to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, what it reminds us of is God's great love for us. The communion table tells us about how Jesus died on the cross in order to be the payment for our sins. It's a celebration of the Last Supper. Jesus was celebrating Passover with his disciples and he took the elements of the Passover and he, he used the elements and he said, these are the things that point. He said, he took a special cup. It was called the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the covenant of my blood. He took and he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And as you walk through the Passover ceremony, and we're actually going to do that, in a few weeks, we're going to actually walk through this, the Passover celebration here in Luke on the next, uh, the next communion Sunday we have. And I'm going to show you exactly what was being talked about in the Passover and, and what Jesus was pointing to. But here's what it points to. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin means we've disobeyed. We've done something wrong. 
There's not a person who's ever lived, man, woman, or child, who's been perfect. Only the God-man, Jesus, was without sin. And because we're sinners, we have a problem. Because Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. We owe a penalty of sin called death. And it's why Jesus came the first time to die in our place to pay that payment of sin for us. And as you look at your life this morning, you have to ask yourself, have you accepted his payment in your place or do you want to pay it yourself? And those who reject his payment will be the ones who are rejected at the great white throne judgment as Jesus says, you have to pay the penalty and you are sent to the lake of fire. And so the question this morning is, have you ever humbled yourself and said to God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I can't get to you, God, by what what I've done with my life. When we receive rewards in the millennial kingdom, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not because we were good enough to get there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Jesus died for you and me. And if you've never received his death in your place, I invite you to do so today. In a moment as the elements are passed, take the piece of bread. It represents his body. And say, Jesus, I believe you're who you said you were, the Son of God. I believe you left your throne in heaven to die for me. And I accept your death in my place. Take the cup of juice and say, Jesus, I know this represents your blood that washed away my sins. And I accept it as the payment for my sins. And if you do those things, the Bible says you will be saved. For the rest of us who have already accepted Jesus, this is a time for us to thank him. To say, God, thank you for taking my place. Thank you for paying my penalty in full. So use this time now to do business with God. If you've never come to him, what's keeping you today from making that decision? And if you have come to him, are there any sins you need to confess so that you can come with clean hands and hearts? As the elements are passed, take them and hold them. We'll take them together. Will you serve us, please? So we talked about all of the events that were taking place in the millennial kingdom coming to an end, leading to the judgment. This is what 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 tells us. Then comes the end when Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he's abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. And as you see there in Revelation 20, it says even death will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will again be no death, no suffering, no disease, no rebellion. The world will be made perfect. And all who are believers in Christ will be with him for all eternity. And it's because of what Jesus did when he came. It's because of the love of God the Father as he sent the Son. It's because of the love of the Son, who as he knelt in the garden and and prayed, he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But he willingly went to the cross and he died for us. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ, our Savior, he did in remembrance of him.
in this cup that we hold, it's just juice. But it points to something so precious. The precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who died for us. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so the perfect and permanent Lamb of God came and gave his life to wash away our sins. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray, please. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life that came through you, the Lord of life. I pray, Father, as recipients of your grace, as those who have received you, Jesus, as our Savior, may we go into the world and share the good news of who you are and how others can be welcomed home and be with you as well for all eternity. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.